Welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. Even in June, the sun doesn't come up until 8 o'clock in the Creston Valley. This is British Columbia, on the Kootenai River, just north of where it swings back into Canada. In summer, naturally, the sky is blue early. Yet the massive wall of the Purcell Mountains rises almost like a cliff, 4,000 feet high, on the valley's east side, and long after daybreak it keeps everyone down below in a chilly shade. Over on the western side of the valley, the Selkirks are brightly lit, but they are a tamer range of oversized hills, or so they seem across from the Purcells, whose cliffs and rock slides are especially impressive in their shroud of shadow. Between the mountains, there is the valley, named from a town of about 5,000 people at its northeastern edge. Perhaps the Creston Valley is seven miles wide. It is hardly more than 10 or 15 miles long, measuring from the Idaho line on the south to Kootenai Lake on the north. Most of it is agricultural land, alfalfa country, and when the sun finally comes up over the top of the Purcells, the dew is chased from the fields, which brighten with millions of tiny alfalfa leaves and purple alfalfa blossoms. Every detail of the Purcell wall is suddenly lit, and from time to time during the day, one's eye falls upon it as a spectacular backdrop. My wife had been after me for years to come to the valley. It's where her mother was born and where she had grown up on a farm whose house was surrounded by a green sea of alfalfa, and it's where she herself spent childhood summers that seemed to have been perfect. For various reasons, we had failed to make it for nearly twenty years, and so I was not given much credit early this summer when I said, okay, this was the year we'd go. We made it, however, and that is why, at six or six-thirty in the morning, I lay in the outbuilding that her family appropriately enough calls the shack, and tried to talk myself into disregarding the chill and getting up. I never did manage to get up before her grandmother. Each morning instead, I got up to find strong coffee ready, not because her grandmother drinks it, but because she had heard that I was particular. I couldn't shake her of it. When I tried, she invariably met me with a wholly false deafness, a kind of chicanery that is easy to get away with when one is eighty-five. For that matter, she had lost an eye many years ago, and though I can't joke about it, I do think that being blind on one side had come in handy over the years whenever she wanted to ignore somebody. I had met her a couple of times before, but mostly I knew of her indirectly from my wife, who comes closer to worshipping this grandmother than she does any other human being on earth. For Margaret, Granny is a model of competence and common sense, traits that my wife probably prizes above all others. I knew that Granny, I may as well use that name, everyone else seems to, had midwifed half the population of the neighborhood, that she had been the local veterinarian in the days before a professional was available, and that she, or so my wife alleged, had been known to drive off an angry bull with a blow to the snout. Still, Granny was all of five feet tall, and though she was happy to talk, she was equally happy not to. She was, thank heaven, not the dynamo of occasional family legend. For some time, in fact, I made the mistake of treating her as some kind of invalid. After all, she suffered from arthritis, was now getting around on artificial hips, and had just come away from surgery for a cataract on her one good eye. She was clearly not superhuman. Once or twice during our stay, the question of a nursing home came up with relatives. 
Their view was that we could forget about it. Granny was determined to stay on the farm, determined to do so in the way one might expect of a woman who had done the things she had done. Aged 16, she had met her future husband in England during World War I, but had been told she could not emigrate to marry him in Canada until she was 21. That came in 1924, and that was the year she left. Once in Canada, she had told her fiancé that she would live with him on a farm or not live with him at all, and so it had been. Always short of money, the two had raised ten children, and, remarkably for the time and place, several had gone to college. Financial need and wartime duty had periodically forced the couple to separate. Her husband often worked elsewhere in the province, sometimes in trail, sometimes even in Vancouver. The farm at such times had been hers and the children's to work. I began to stop treating her like an invalid. After I asked her if she wanted a nap after lunch, she laughed and said scoffingly that she only took naps when she was visiting those of her children who took them. One day, too, she showed me the stump puller she had used. It was next to the shack, and I wouldn't have had a hard time inducing her to show me how to use it. What finally set me straight was a walk we took one afternoon around a migratory bird refuge down along the Kootenai River in the reedy swamps that people call the flats. At the end of our circuit, my wife briefly disappeared into a restroom. I sat down. After all, it was a hot day, and we had been walking for perhaps half an hour. After a minute, I realized that Granny was standing bolt upright, hands clasped in front of her. I couldn't tell what she was looking at, but I had the awkward feeling that she was intent on not observing her grandson-in-law. My wife had told me long before that Granny's house was tiny, but I had not really grasped what she meant, perhaps because I was thinking about the kind of space I think is needed to raise a family of ten children. We entered the house through the kitchen, which was really an enclosed lean-to. Through the high wall there, a doorway had been cut into the larger but still tiny main house, which had no more than a living room and a bedroom downstairs, and a single room upstairs, with a dormer on the south side. The house did have a bathroom, but it had come late, years after the children were gone, and it took up the space next to the bedroom, where originally there had been a small, squarish porch looking east to the Purcell wall. I never got the chronology straight, but somewhere along the line the shack had been put up, maybe ten paces straight ahead of the kitchen door. Someone must have decided that ten children in one upstairs room was too many. When the sun came up each morning, the three of us would go outside and sit between the house and the shack. Granny's small vegetable and flower garden were in front of us, and beyond it, and encircling the house, were her alfalfa fields. She had been given a bucket of Bing cherries by one of her neighbors, and it turns out that cherries go well with coffee. So, for that matter, did the raspberries provided by one of my wife's aunts, who lives nearby on another farm, and who has an Olympic-sized garden. The raspberry supply was becoming sporadic because wild huckleberries had just begun turning ripe, and for reasons I never learned, huckleberries take precedence in this family over everything else. Still, I was happy with cherries. There is something particularly satisfying about leaning back in a straight wooden chair, casting a critical eye on some alfalfa, and practicing one's pit-spitting. 
We talked a lot about the history of the farm. I knew something about it at the outset because for many years my wife had been lugging around a water-damaged book called Fruit Ranching in British Columbia, written by one J.T. Bealby and published in London in 1907. It warned readers that fruit growers, quote, lead the strenuous life, unquote. Still, it is the sort of book that people in London must have read with a sigh of how life might be. It is chock full of letters and anecdotes, proving that fruit growing in B.C. can be undertaken in full confidence of the most wonderful results. Bealby specifically reports the auction in 1906 of uncleared crown land near Creston, for which men bid between $20 and $150 an acre. These men, he says, were locals, not the kind to be taken in by promoters. They paid top dollar, Bealby implies, because they were getting top land. To the west, after all, the Okanagan Valley had already earned such a reputation as a fruit-growing area that people had dropped the word valley altogether and simply spoke, as they do in B.C. today, of the Okanagan. The Crescent Valley was even nearer to eastern markets than the Okanagan, and not just as the crow flies either. The Canadian Pacific Railroad comes through, right through Creston. For many years after Bealby's book was published, people wanting to farm in the Creston Valley stayed off the flats, unless they wanted their houses regularly flooded. They stayed on the eastern side of the valley, specifically on what is now called the Lister Bench, an old glacial lake bed. The soils are heavy clays, overlying rough glacial debris. But they aren't bad for fruit trees. By the end of World War I, the northeastern part of the valley, around the town of Crescent itself, had been sold and developed as Bealby might have wanted. The government was so confident of the fruit-growing potential of the bench farther south that it then approved a veterans' settlement scheme to be built under the leadership of a Colonel Robert Lister, about five miles south of Creston. Granny's husband was one of the original participants in the scheme, and Granny has a copy of the scheme's plat map. It is a print on linen and shows about 240-acre lots roughly grouped around a town site named after Lister himself. Many of the settlers were married, but they came alone and lived in bunkhouses until the farms were ready for occupants. The men worked as teams, laying out a dense network of roads over the roughly 8,000 acres of the scheme. They cleared, as I recall, about 20 acres of land on each lot, and set out 10 acres of fruit trees, mostly apples. Wells were dug and simple houses were built, very simple houses. Granny's kitchen is no more than one of the houses built for bachelors, and her main house is the kind built for married men. She and her husband eventually bought one of the bachelor houses and stuck it onto their own. Today there are about 1,500 acres of orchards in the valley, but none are in Lister, where orchards failed utterly. The reason is that, just south of Creston, the Goat River plunges through a deep canyon in the Purcells and joins the Kootenai. The Goat's Canyon carries cold winds that spread out to the south when they enter the valley. They avoid Creston, in other words, and head for the 200 farms of old Camp Lister. Granny recalls how their trees were killed. She and her husband replanted them, only to have the trees killed a second time. There are still a very few fruit trees on the bench. Outside Granny's house there are a couple of plums and pears, for example, but they are just for domestic use. They are sighted on high ground, 
to help avoid cold air. Even so, these few trees often fail to set fruit simply because they have been hit at blossoming by a cold wind down the canyon of the goat. By the time Granny arrived in 1924, half the settlers had already quit. Many of the men had been unsuited to the work. With a touch of humor and a little bite in her voice, Granny says that some of them had been tailors and clerks. Most of the remainder left when, in the late 1920s, there were years of drought so harsh that the wells went dry. The settlers had to hike to creeks every day for water, and the few cows they owned had to be driven to the flats. So many farms were abandoned that the government sought to recruit a new generation of settlers, this time experienced farmers from Germany. The Germans refused to come without water, and so in the late 1920s the government built a water supply system, a dam on one of the Purcell Range creeks, and a pipeline to each farmstead. The system did not provide enough water for irrigation, only enough for domestic use and livestock watering, and the settlers, old and new, looked about for an unirrigated crop on which they could make a living. Some must have tried corn, for near Granny's farm there is an old octagonal crib with sides made of louvered wooden slats. For a few years, too, people grew timothy for sale as hay. Then, in the early 30s, somebody realized that alfalfa would do well here. Since then, alfalfa has been the primary crop south of the Goat River. One dairy farm continues to grow corn, otherwise the fields are all alfalfa, sometimes in 40-acre plots, but often in smaller ones, bordered by surviving patches of the original cedar and hemlock forest. Of course, nobody can make a living from 40 acres of alfalfa, certainly not in this part of the world. That's why my wife's grandparents were separated for years, she staying on the farm with the children and he working somewhere else. Today, the alfalfa on the farm is cut for Granny by one of her many son-in-laws, a son of one of the German settlers. He has his own nearby farm, raises a few head of cattle, and bales alfalfa for them and for sale. For many years, his wife worked as a local school teacher. He himself still works full-time in a Creston sawmill. That leaves the alfalfa and the cows for after hours. When my wife and I dropped by his farm late one afternoon, he was busy at work in the fields. He had made his second cut some days earlier with an automatic loader that builds them into square blocks for loading straight into a hay shed. It was a funny juxtaposition, modern machinery and the old hay sheds from years past, sheds with walls of irregular planks, hand-sawn. Granny doesn't drive, never did, except for horses and tractors, and several times we took her out for a spin, mostly so she could answer questions and partly because she enjoyed getting out. First, we went to the town site of Lister. Neatly platted, it had never amounted to much, and with Crescent only five miles away, what little there had been of it had just about vanished. Until this year, there had at least been a store, Lister Mercantile. When it closed, it took with it the only gas pump around, as well as the post office that had been inside the store. Around the corner from the old store, there is an Anglican church. Vandalism has forced its closing for all but special occasions. The adjoining Lutheran church, built no doubt by the later German settlers, has been converted into a private house. Granny pointed out somewhat disapprovingly that its steeple-top cross had not been removed. 
Both churches have had cemeteries. They adjoin, I think, the woods on the back of Granny's farm. She did not in the least object to their proximity, said, in fact, that the occupants made good neighbors. It's sensible, especially since she intends to be buried in the Anglican one herself, next to her husband. Yet the way she spoke about death took me aback. It was so nigh cheerful. Twice I mentioned somebody or other who, it turned out, had died. In a matter-of-fact tone that momentarily masked her joke, Granny replied that the person was dead at present. It took a few seconds for me, sentimental soul, to be sure I had heard right. Twice I saw her humor replaced by irritation. Once was when we passed the Lister Community Center a couple of miles south of the town site. It had been used for things like dances, Granny said, adding that she had helped with the food but had firmly declined invitations to dance herself. Next to the building there had been a swimming pool, too, something that had taken a lot of effort and expense to get up and running. Now the center was hardly used at all, and the pool was permanently closed. The problem was that the younger people in the community simply weren't willing to take the time to keep things going. Granny doesn't dwell on things, but she probably made the same point two or three times before dropping it. The other thing that annoyed her involved horses. What happened was that one morning, and to the surprise of all three of us, we saw a Clydesdale coming towards us on a quiet road. It was in harness and pulling a sulky. We stopped to chat with the rider, who turned out to have a pair of Clydes, which he showed around the province and out in the prairies. This particular horse was a little rambunctious, he said. It needed to be taught to walk properly. Granny, for some years, had plowed her fields with mixed-breed workhorses. And when this man told us that one of his neighbors had a dozen Clydes, my wife decided that we had to invite ourselves in for a look. It seemed a bit forward to me, but perhaps in a place like the valley it's all right. In any event, we found the right farm, and were pointed by a wife to a barn where indeed we found a dozen Clydes in stalls, apparently spending a great deal of time there for lack of sufficient pasture. Their owner was pleased to talk about them, and the conversation was amiable enough. Granny asked how long he, the present owner, had been here. The answer was three years, in a tone that suggested permanence until he asked her the same question. Still, she made light of the answer, 64 years, and ignored the hole that her answer left in the conversation. She went on to ask if these people had bought the place from a certain family she knew. It turned out to my surprise, and perhaps to hers, that there had been a half-dozen owners since the people she remembered. Leaving, we were invited to return. I thought there was at least a chance that Granny might do just that, as we drove off, however, I was surprised to hear the edge in her voice. How could people keep such animals confined? Those animals were meant to be worked. No wonder that the other man's horse was troublesome if that was the way it was being kept. Well, it was fine to be invited back, but she wouldn't be going. Eventually, my wife and I went into Creston on our own to visit the Agriculture Canada office there. We talked with a staff person about agriculture on the flats, about the huge fields of wheat and potatoes reclaimed in the twenty years or so since Libby Dam was built upstream and more or less put an end to floods in the valley. I had wanted to learn something, too, about the nearby orchards. Their owners, it turned out, were having a difficult time surviving in the shadow of that international giant, Washington State. 
Indeed, the 1,500 surviving acres were only one-third of the 5,000 that had been bearing in 1950. Returns were poor, it seemed, even for the largest grower. An off-farm income was essential even for him. I casually mentioned the workhorses we had seen on the Lister bench. The Lister bench? A look of disgust came across the man's face. The place was, quote, an equine slum, he said. The phrase had a certain force to it, but seemed harsh. I told myself to realize that it came from someone whose job is agricultural intensification. Here was the government, after all, keen on introducing Dutch-style orchards, short-lived dwarf trees rigidly shaped. Here were the flats, modern grain and potato farms laid out in great squares. And here was the Lister bench, a bunch of older farmers sticking to old-fashioned alfalfa while a stream of hobby farmers came in to play with horses. But why horses here? The answer is that the hobby farms are an unintended consequence of a law passed by the provincial government in 1973 to preserve agricultural land. The law prohibits subdivisions of parcels exceeding two acres, unless special approval is obtained. The law is a sensible one for a province short of arable land, but people wanting hobby farms are just about out of luck since big farms can no longer be broken up. Instead, hobby farmers have to search out the limited supply of small holdings. The law, in short, makes the old soldier settlement lots into hot items. I didn't relay this conversation to Granny because I thought it would hurt her feelings, but looking back, I am sure I was overestimating her sensitivity. After all, the things that annoyed her were things like closing a pool or confining horses, things that, in some way, hurt somebody or something. Expressing an opinion did neither, not in her book. Besides, Granny wasn't easily upset. I think of the forest fire that had once swept by her farm. She had been told to run with the children, but there was nowhere to run. Nothing to do but wait and see if the fire stayed clear of the farm. It did. She wasn't likely, after something like that, to be much bothered that an agronomist in Creston didn't approve of what was happening down her way. The funny thing in all this is that Camp Lister and Granny's store are, by almost any conventional measure of rural development, outright failures. Certainly, the original idea of fruit growing fell flat. The farm had never become a self-sustaining economic unit either. My mother-in-law says that even with outside employment, the family, quote, never had two nickels to rub together, unquote. If an expert from an international aid agency were to review the scheme today and prepare a report, something along the lines of lessons learned, there is no doubt that the scheme would be dismissed as yet another case of poor planning. What this shows, I think, is the absurdity of the measures we use to judge rural development, for Granny's farm is the closest I've ever seen to a successful homestead. I'm not thinking of the fact that nobody went hungry on this farm. I'm not thinking of the fact that none of the children had been denied as much education as they wanted or that none had turned out mean or dishonest. After all, Granny herself isn't much given to sentimental recollections of her years with what she cheerfully calls rugrats and knee-biters. There had been a reunion a year before, in fact, and she was distinctly unenthusiastic about plans for another in four years. Too many people, she said, no time to visit with anyone. What makes her farm successful instead is the satisfaction she found in the valley. 
Once only, about a decade ago, and some years after she was widowed, she had returned to Britain. She was amazed to find that the Yorkshire village of her youth was frozen in time, unchanged, because it was protected in the green belt. Anyway, it's behind her now. Unlike so many people who left England in this century, she has no wish to return again, even for a visit. She says that when she left England, she left for good. As my wife says, it's no longer home. Simple words for a powerful idea. Several times, my wife and I went off to visit cousins and the like. Every time we came back to the farm, we would drive in through the alfalfa and loop back to the farmhouse in its island. There might be lunch. One day it was fresh peas and potatoes from the garden, some thoroughly inorganic hot dogs, more fresh raspberries and tea. But every time we came in the driveway, lunch or no... Granny would be sitting outside. I began to predict that we would find her moved by not so much as an inch from where she'd been when we left. We'd come in, and I'd tease her about all this sitting. Was that what dotage was all about? It didn't bother her in the least. I've got my mountains, she would say. That's all I need. 